Welcome to episode 1,240 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. You say that you're doing better than the Washington Nationals, who, as I look at this now, I know that they've been in a slump, and uh, I know that uh, every team slumps, so the Nationals are, are fading a little bit, but I did not realize that when I looked at uh, Roto World, just innocently looking, I glanced up at the top of the page and I saw Miami 7. Washington zero. Didn't know what sport I was looking at. Checked in. Second inning, seven nothing. Marlins over the Nationals. I, I know in the National League, none of, none of the three teams that we expected to win the divisions are actually out in front yet. But I, mm-hmm. I still kind of feel like it's just a matter of time for the Dodgers. Just a matter of time for the Cubs. Feel like it's they're still the pretty clear favorites. But the Nationals are actually in a lot more trouble than I've given them credit for so far. Have you have you looked at them at all? Well, I know that Travis Sachik wrote an article about the Nationals being in trouble on Thursday at Fangraphs, and so I'm aware that they're in trouble. I'm also aware that they had a closed-door meeting, the dreaded closed-door meeting, after their most recent loss, but it would appear that the closed-door meeting has not helped immediately if they're losing 7 nothing to the Marlins as we speak. Yeah, right. They are, I assume, you know, everyone who's listening to this will be listening to this after the game is over. Maybe the Nationals come back. That would be fantastic for them. And if they do so, they will be back to 500. But otherwise, they will be 42 and 44. As I'm looking at the standings right now, it's Thursday evening. We're five and a half behind the Phillies, who are in second place, seven behind the Braves, who are in first. I'm not saying the Nationals are going to trade Bryce Harper. I don't know what it would take for them to trade (laughs) Bryce Harper. But there is no part of my brain that thought there was even a possibility that the Nationals would get to the middle of the season and be in position to be able to justify trading Bryce Harper. But like you could you could make the argument pretty soon yeah. if they slumped for another week. <laughs> well, we actually have a listener email on that very subject, which I will read very shortly. But they are, as we speak, seven games back of the Braves, and then they have the Phillies in between the two teams. And both of those teams are pretty good. That's the thing. Maybe true talent-wise, I don't know. Maybe they're not as good as the Nationals, and the Nationals are just having a bunch of things go wrong. But both of those teams are good. Neither one is super fluky. They're talented and young and have had a bunch of people come up and be good. So it's not really one of those situations where an obviously inferior team gets out to a hot start, and then it's just a matter of can they hang on seemed like it might be that, but maybe these teams are actually as good or close to as good, in which case it is hard to make up seven games over half a season. And yet Juan Soto is 19, and he has a 158 <laughs> OPS+. plus. He somehow yeah. hasn't been a... I know that Daniel Murphy hasn't gotten back to speed, and I know that Steven Strasburg is sideline, and I know this team is, is thinner than it, it ought to be. I know they've been playing a little too much Wilmer Defoe. I know that they have Matt Adams and... Mark Reynolds on this team. It's, there's there's a lot going on with the Nationals. Matt Adams has played the outfield. No team that plays Matt Adams in the outfield deserves to be in the hunt. So in that <laughs> sense, maybe credit to the Nationals for hanging around. But still, uh, used to be like uh, in early May, I I thought maybe the Dodgers are the uh, the early season favorite who are in the most trouble. But no, no, they're not. It's the Nationals, no. and they're in it right now. 
Yeah, yeah, Ryan Zimmerman was bad and then has been hurt. And, you know, they still have good players on this team. Like Anthony Rendon is his usual good self. And Trey Turner has been pretty good. Soto's been unbelievable. And Harper has been somewhat disappointing, which we can talk about in just a moment. But, yeah, this is not great because I think coming into the year, there was maybe a perception that, The Nationals were kind of looking okay for the long term, even though Harper was entering his walk year, that there were enough young guys such as Soto coming up that you could imagine them kind of extending this run, even though things were about to get much tougher with the Braves getting good and the Phillies getting good. You could still kind of envision the Nationals continuing to compete, but... This is bad. This is like Matt Williams' year bad, almost. I don't know whether it's worse to have this sort of season or to have yet another heartbreaking early playoff exit, but it looks like they're choosing between those two every year at this point. So not great. I know that Bryce Harper, his numbers are down. I'm sure we'll talk about him again soon. But, you know, his his batting average on balls in play is very, very low. So it's easy to say, mm-hmm. well, as soon as he gets that back, he'll be back to himself. I will point out that in June, Bryce Harper had a WRC plus of 87 and a pretty normal looking BABIP. So Bryce Harper, not all the way back. He's had a bad start here in July. I don't actually know what's wrong. I don't think I've done a a deep dive into him. What's probably wrong is not a whole lot. But still, you think about coming into the year. I know you already wrote your article about the uh, the pending free agent class, but boy, this Mm -hmm. is the complete opposite of what Bryce Harper needed to do. And all he's missing now is a DL stint. Yeah, yeah. So looking at the Fangrass playoff odds, this is prior to this ongoing probable loss, but entering play on Thursday, they still had the best odds of winning the division, according to Fangrass, and a 58% chance of making the playoffs. So I don't know whether you buy that or not and think that maybe those odds are overrating them in some way, but that is a lot of ground to make up. And you figure that the Braves and Phillies might be buyers at the deadline, might get better in some way. Maybe the Nationals will too. But yeah, for now, like the Cubs are not in first place, but they have 76% chance to win the division, according to Fangraphs right now. And the Dodgers are also not quite in first place as we speak. They're half a game back, but they have, what, 78% odds to win the division. If anything, that seems low to me now. So Nationals have come down quite a bit, but according to the playoff odds, maybe there's still a better chance that they win this than not. I don't know. This is kind of the perpetual battle between believing the in-season results and believing the projections. And as you've shown repeatedly, usually better to believe the projections. Speaking of not believing the projections, or maybe doing so, I don't know, Wade LeBlanc contract extension. We didn't talk about this, but (laughs) this was definitely a a press release. I didn't think that I would ever receive a Wade LeBlanc press release related (laughs) to anything happening. Maybe if Wade LeBlanc put together some sort of artificial press release to like announce a house party, (laughs) and he was so desperate for friends, he invited me. But Wade LeBlanc contract extension... Seattle Mariners, he says it's life-changing money, which it probably is. I don't really know. But just the the idea of a team making a commitment to Wade LeBlanc, it's not even a bad idea. He's he's done fine. And this is, I don't know what's is canary in the coal mine, the right expression here, but I have this, this sneaking suspicion, and we've talked about this before, but I'm waiting for baseball to turn against the high velocity, or at least the highest possible velocity. Uh-huh. And I need th- this guy, this guy is the guy that I need to be around for another 
10 years or so. And you know what? To his credit, he's been real strong this season. He's been a good pitcher, short of like one or two games. Glad to see him get extended. Uh, but, you know, you put him in the free agent market, what does he get? Because I'll tell you what he gets. It's the nothing that he got last offseason when I think he was a free agent. Yeah, right. I mean, he'd get more than that now, but he's been everywhere and he's been bad almost everywhere until now. So good for him. Good story. I don't know exactly how it happened or how it is happening, but evidently the Mariners are confident that it will keep happening. So good for Wade LeBlanc. So we're doing an email show and we don't have uh, much in the way of fresh banter because you just heard it. So let's do some emails. You got them. Yeah, I do. So let's just start with the Nationals questions, I guess. So This one is from Colin, and he asked this, I think, months ago, so it was more unrealistic then, less unrealistic now, but here's the question. If we believe that postseason odds are not meaningfully altered by one hitter, should the Nationals not trade Bryce Harper for prospects at the deadline? Unless they are in a surprising division race, the value to them down the stretch from Harper will be minimal. Assuming Robles can hack it at the MLB level, the choices are, one, let Harper walk in the offseason and pick up some picks, Two, trade Harper to someone who needs outfield or DH help and spare him a qualifying offer discount on his way out. Cleveland, Boston, New York if they have injuries, Seattle, Oakland all need outfield help. Nationals are going to lose in the NLDS again anyway. Obvious clubhouse and fan revolt aside, does this make sense from a pure nerd slash value angle? Okay, so we've had the conversation about completely dismantling a juggernaut right after they win the World Series. That one's kind of fun, but <laughs> yeah. this one, okay, this one I like. Now, in theory, okay, so you, if you keep Harper, you're a little bit better, and then you get a, some sort of compensation draft pick, a, a high one because he's going to sign mm-hmm. a big deal. If you trade him because he's going to be a rental, and certainly right now with the way he's performing, he, he's not like a, even a Manny Machado-level rental. He's a guy mm-hmm. where you. I think that when we see Machado traded and if we hypothetically saw Bryce Harper get traded, fans are – I think they're going to be surprised by how light the return package is. So I think that, you know, if you're if you're looking to move somebody like Harper, then you're going to get the, a huge return two, three years before his contract is up, but you move him now. I don't think that you're going to get like a necessarily a franchise-changing player. But now I'm going to look past the part where we have fatalistically determined the Nationals are just going to lose in the in the NLDS because at that <laughs> point trade them all. <laughs> what is it? What does it matter? But who who would you? Uh, the Indians, I guess, make the most sense maybe, or the yeah, or the Astros if they aren't real settled in in left field. But. Gosh, I mean, Robles is coming back. He was hurt to start the season. Probably wouldn't have a Juan Soto situation, but you know, you wouldn't have expected Juan Soto to be better than Bryce Harper at this point in the season. And and look where we are. So we've never seen a good team subtract, right? It, it just it wouldn't make any sense. The closest we've seen was that the white flag trade, which was not really that dramatic. But I can't think of a single right. good team that has ever subtracted because how would you sell that? No, I I don't know. I mean, you could make the case that maybe the Nationals need Harper down the stretch now even more than they would have before, in that before we would have assumed that they would make the playoffs and with Harper or without Harper, and maybe there's a bigger advantage to getting into the playoffs than there is to having Harper once you are in the playoffs. I mean, I don't know how much having Harper versus not having Harper, if he's even good, improves your odds of winning a a five or seven game series. But over three months, if Harper is actually the good Harper, then he's worth a few wins potentially, and that could get you into the playoffs, which is valuable. So maybe now their odds right now, we just cited them, 
they're still decent according to the projections of winning this division. So you subtract Harper if you don't replace him with someone equally good then those odds go down and that hurts you. But I just don't know how you could ever sell it to the clubhouse, to the fan base, to your manager, to all the personnel. I mean, it might make sense from a certain perspective, just in terms of expected future value versus present value in the very cold and clinical way that you look at it. But I don't know. If they're on the playoff bubble, then you could make the case that it's more valuable to them to make the playoffs than to trade him for prospects who probably will not be franchise-altering players. It might be easier to sell it to the clubhouse than you than you might think. Okay, so put yourself in the place of, uh, of one or two baseball executives. Let's say that you're in charge of the Nationals. You've got Bryce Harper, who's a very good player, a contract year having a down season. And let's say the Indians are interested in Bryce Harper. The Indians have Andrew Miller, very good player. Uh, value in the playoffs, having a down season, contract year. If you're the Nationals, you're looking at the the rest of this season and of the playoffs. Would you rather have Bryce Harper or Andrew Miller? Well, we've seen what a healthy and effective Andrew Miller can do in the playoffs, and I think that Andrew Miller is more valuable relative to his regular season self in the playoffs than Harper is relative to his regular season self. So I think probably... If I were confident that Harper were going to be great Harper again, I'd rather have Harper, but at this point I'm not. So it's pretty close, probably. It kind of depends on like what you need on your roster, and maybe you could make the case that the Nationals need a shutdown reliever if that's what Miller is or will be more than they need an outfielder. That would be a fun who hangs up. <laughs> Bryce Bryce Harper for Andrew Miller right now. Yeah. And I I think I think it's absurd to say that the Indians hang up, uh-huh. but I don't know if it's so absurd because I, I just there's like winds of breath replacement hanging over my head, but then there's also you know the rest of it. Right. So yeah, didn't think we'd end up here, but this is where we are. <laughs> well, here's another Bryce Harper question. This is from a listener who goes by T. He says, Sam once asked how much a player could get if he only took one-year deals. I think he estimated that if one of the very best players took one-year deals only, they could ask for $45 or so per year. Maybe more than that. That was probably years ago. Bryce Harper's relative down year leaves open the idea that he could take a one-year deal or short-term with year-to-year opt-outs. How much could Bryce Harper get next year on a one-year deal? If, say, we were from the future and could look back and see Harper only took one-year deals and his war totals fluctuated from average to superstar with some age decline, and if he retired at 38, how much would Bryce Harper have made in his career? So if Bryce Harper takes the pillow contract this year, he is a Scott Boris client. Scott Boris loves the pillow contracts. I can only imagine what sort of nautical analogies we will get when it comes to Bryce Harper this offseason. But if he decided to do that, and you could imagine it because he is coming off a very bad year as far as uh, a platform or, or walk year, what would he get? Look, Bryce Harper is an oil tanker. And just because <laughs> one oil tanker runs aground and pollutes an entire coast of the state and some provinces, it does not mean that we should no longer ship oil by water. Most <laughs> oil tankers don't run aground. They don't pollute the globe. They don't pollute the oceans. Most uh-huh. oil tankers serve a necessary function for a daily existence. Where, how do, I know that you don't drive, but you've got electricity that powers your computer. Mm-hmm. Everybody else drives. I drive. My fiance drives. Most people drive, at least over here. The people need oil. And just because Bryce Harper 
is having one disaster, it doesn't mean that the next Bryce Harper voyage is going to end up in. So what do you think he would get as a pillow contract this year? $25 million <laughs> one year? At least, right? I think. Like, that's if he went, I mean, there's there's still three months of the season left, right? So I don't, mm-hmm. if you look at the at the projections, he's projected to do better uh, in the next three months that he said for the for the first three, and he would end up a, a three and a half win player. So let's let's say he ends like that. A three and a half war over full season. He stays healthy, but he's hitting below his career mark. He's hitting well below with his perceived ceiling. So I I think he would be able to find twenty five or thirty million over one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually without even tremendous difficulty, teams love signing one year contracts. Yeah, I think now teams would also like to have someone like Bryce Harper for longer than that. But okay, so we'll say twenty five or thirty. We'll just twenty five is easier. So well maybe it's not, but we're still doing it. So we'll say twenty five this uh, this coming winter. And then he's going to be going into his age 26 season, mm-hmm. and he's probably better than this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that this is not the, the real version of Bryce Harper. Now, I, I think the ship is somewhat sailed on his nine war seasons. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's not Mike Trout. No one is Mike Trout. Mookie Betts isn't Mike Trout. Only Mike Trout is Mike Trout. What sort of ship would that be? Mike Trout? <laughs> the ship. Is that the oil tanker, or is that a different oh, ship Oh, the, the ship that sailed? Yeah. Do oil tankers sail? Do you need a sail to sail? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No? I'm not speaking so. metaphorically. <laughs> no, I think you can sail with uh, just an engine. Okay. I guess I don't actually know that. Well, <laughs> if anyone out there is a sailor or a mariner. <laughs> well, that's okay, that so, <laughs> so he would uh, Bryce Harper would have 13 more seasons I was supposed to do all this math on the fly on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tough ask. Okay, what's well hold on. Let's okay, so let's say thirteen seasons times we'll just use as a baseline thirty million average. So that takes him up to three hundred ninety million. Now he would make more than that because of inflation, but toward the end of his uh, his career he would be getting worse. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start I'm going to put it at around 500 million. Do you take the over or the under? This is including what he's made already. I mean, he hasn't made that much already, right? So No, I don't know, but I didn't consider that. Yeah. I'll take the over. All right. Well, in 14 years, we're going to come back and look at this podcast <laughs> and we're going to determine. Okay. Sail, by the way, to sail, to move along or travel over water is at least one definition of sail. Doesn't specify that there needs to be a sail involved. I feel like that there does need to be a sale involved. <laughs> okay. You're just a, a literalist when it comes to the word sale. All right. Question from Joseph, Patreon supporter. Considering the AL playoff bracket, should the Astros consider purposefully being a little worse in terms of record than the Yankees and Red Sox, but still good enough to win their division? Assuming the best record in the AL comes out of the AL East, then both of those powerhouses would have to face off in the division series. The Astros' first-round matchup would be easier, and they would only have to win four games against the Yankees or Red Sox to get to the World Series. They would lose out on home field advantage in the ALCS, but that seems like the only downside. No. (laughs) They shouldn't purposefully tank in order to get a more favorable playoff matchup, you're saying. I thought this was just going to end up, you know, like, hey, the Indians are up 11 and a half games on the Tigers. Should the Indians consider trading Francisco Lindor <laughs> for prospects and relievers? Yeah. No, I, I mean, for one thing, the Astros are still trying to win their division. I know that they're mm-hmm. a great deal better than the Mariners, but you can't give away games at this point. So definitely can't do that. And and in the playoffs, things just get so different. You don't want to give up home games and opposing rosters just don't resemble their regular season selves. Everybody is extremely good in the playoffs. And I don't I don't think any team would ever pick its opponent in this Mm -hmm. kind of scenario. All right. Colin from Virginia says, I've been thinking about John Olrude and the Hall of Fame recently. 
Olrud was a quietly productive player during his 16 full seasons, 1990 to 2005, roughly 60 baseball reference war and fan graphs were, which is an average war per season of about 3.6. Even though he didn't receive a lot of MVP or All-Star consideration, he was on the Hall of Fame ballot once in 2011. That year, he received 0.7% of votes, which seems laughably low for someone with his credentials. Former teammate Joe Carter, for example, received 3.8% of votes in 2004, and he has fewer than 20 career wins above replacement. So here are my questions. First, has anyone with as many career wins above replacement as Olrud received so few Hall of Fame votes? Second, why was Olrud so underrepresented by Hall of Fame voters? Finally, should Olrud receive Veterans Committee Hall of Fame consideration? If a case exists for Olrud, what is it? I would love for there to be a case for Olrud because John Olrud was my first favorite player. I can tell you, uh, looking at John Olrud's Fangraphs page, there is a post linked. Uh, from January 8th, 2010, by Jack Moore, titled John Olerud's Hall of Fame Case. So there's an article <laughs> that's out there yeah, for people interested to read it. It's, uh-huh. I think it's it's pretty easy to look at Olerud, and I don't know exactly what the Hall of Fame voting pool is going to look like down the road, but I know with a lot more clarity what it has looked like. And John Olerud is a first baseman who didn't hit for a lot of power, and mm-hmm. his game was drawing more walks than he struck out. So his game was contact and singles and doubles. And that's just not, it hasn't been an appealing profile for a Hall of Fame player. And now I don't think that John Olerud had a, he was close, but I don't think he had a Hall of Fame career by my own standards. But he was a very, very good player. He should have probably gotten a little more support than he did. But he just didn't hit any of the thresholds that you would have expected from someone who was already in the Hall of Fame. Whereas if John Olerud had the exact same career in 10 years or even just having it right now, and he was able mm-hmm. to have different people voting him, I think he would have stayed on the ballot more than a year. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like a first-base version of Chase Utley, I guess. Yeah, I was trying to think of guys who might have gotten even less Hall of Fame support despite being as good or better. And the obvious ones that I thought of first, guys like Kenny Lofton, Bobby Gritch, Jim Edmonds, those guys actually did get a little more support than Olrud did. See, Edmonds got 2.5% of the vote, Lofton got 3.2, Bobby Gritch 2.6. So lots of guys in that range who really should have had more support and didn't get it. And Olrud, I loved watching Olrud. He was really great. When I first got into baseball, the Blue Jays were really good. And so I kind of focused on the Blue Jays. And I was briefly like a Blue Jays follower just because I was very young and very bandwagon. And John Olrud was cool. And John Olrud hit 363 in 1993. And he was third in MVP voting. And he had the sweet lefty swing. And then I got to see him when he came to play in New York a little bit at the end of his career with the Yankees and before that with the Mets. Of course, you saw him, great fielder, just a really good all-around player. But going by Jaws, at least, the Hall of Fame standards, he's a bit below the average first baseman in the Hall of Fame. I'm sure he is considerably better than some Hall of Fame first baseman. So if you want to make that case, you can always find someone who probably shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame and say, well, he's better than that guy. So I'm sure he passes that test. But he's not on the top of the list of snubs, guys who should be in who aren't in. But I am generally in favor of more appreciation for John Olrud. How many seasons 
from now going out, how many seasons would Albert Pujols have to play before his war drops under John Oliver's? <laughs> There's a difference of about 40. <laughs> yeah. Pujols is uh, in positive territory this year, right? Barely, maybe. Is that true? One second. Had a little bit of a hot streak and maybe got into... Negative 0.2. Ah, okay. Well, all right then. So, I don't know. Probably he'd have to play, uh, what, 10 years if he were playing first base every day? Because uh, the, the latter half of those years would be like a negative 4-5 kind of war season, probably. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying to find any sort of other players who didn't get a whole lot of support. But like even Greg Nettles stayed on the ballot for... Four years, Andrew Jones got 7% support. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Olerud's just kind of out there. I'm not going to say he's all by himself, but he was—he just did not have a very appealing case, which is which is too bad because John mm-hmm. Olerud was uh, was a whole lot of fun. And he would—I think that, like, if, if you can imagine a, a less charismatic Joey Votto, there was a, <laughs> yeah. there's elements there. It would be fun to have Olerud around right now. Yeah. All right. Mark says, hey, Ben and Jeff, that's us. Ben lamented Trout's time as a DH a few weeks back because of its impact on his war, which made me think, how good would Trout have to be this year to maintain his historic war pace if he were permanently a DH? Is there a path for a DH to achieve 14 or 15 war? Fortunately, Mike Trout is back in center field, which is nice, but... He did have, what, 10 days or so there where he was DHing and not hitting particularly well, and maybe that will be what ends up preventing him from getting the all-time single-season war record. But, yeah, how good would you have to be as a full-season DH to challenge that record? You would have to be, gosh, (laughs) double berry ponds or something. I don't know. Yeah, there would be a way to run these numbers, but it would take me too long to actually do right now. Mm -hmm. But you would basically... Okay, so if you're a DH and you're looking at this, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that Trout is just an average defensive center fielder. So there's no extra value there, right? So then the difference would be the positional adjustment, which over mm-hmm. 600 plate appearances, I think it is, the positional adjustment for WAR for center fielders is plus 2.5 runs, and for a designated hitter, it's minus 17.5. So there's a 20 yeah. run difference between center field and DH. So Essentially, you would need Mike Trout to have a 14-war Mike Trout season, except plus 20 more runs of value uh-huh. at the plate. So that can come from a uh, variety of areas, whether that's like, ugh, what, like 15 more home runs or just a <laughs> bunch more singles and doubles. Can't get hurt. It's uh, tremendously difficult. I'm trying to figure out the best ever season by a, a DH. But like even, what, David, I, I think Eddie Martinez topped out around eight or nine when he was a player i mean if bonds had had a full dh season at his offensive peak so what was that 2002 i guess was his highest wrc plus he had a 244 wrc plus that year he ended up at 12.7 war in 143 games and that was as a left fielder Okay, that's it. I am typing on a calculator on the podcast. So here's what we're doing. In 2002, (laughs) according to Fangraphs, we're going to round some numbers here. In 2002, according to Fangraphs, Barry Bonds was worth 126.8 runs above replacement. Mm -hmm. So here's what we're going to do. He was a perfectly average left fielder that year, which makes things easier for us, maybe. Yeah. Well, now let's take that away. So I'm going to subtract from his value minus 4.3 runs of fielding value 
But I'm going to add back in 6.3 runs of positional. Just, okay, just bear with me here. <laughs> now I'm just going to subtract the DH penalty here. So I'm going to uh-huh. you know, do uh, do that. I'm just going to do so. Okay, so he comes out as like 11.2 war, just about. So he loses a win and a half or something like that. So that's 2002 Barry Bonds, a little over 11 war as an everyday DH. So is that with his actual games played total from that year? Played 143. Yeah, so if he had played 20 more games or 162 games, maybe okay. he gets there. Okay. Well, let's we have see. to prorate let's everything. Just... Get your let's calculator back everything out. everything out there. 12, he's, a little, <laughs> he's close to 13 war. So Barry Bonds, uh-huh. if he played every single game in 2002, yeah. he could have been a 12.5 to 13 war designated hitter. So all Mike Trout would have to do is be the absolute best offensive version of the absolute best offensive player that ever there was on the planet, and then yes. do that every single game. That year, yes. Barry Bonds walked 32% of the time, and he struck out less than a quarter of that. <laughs> yeah, so he'd need to do that and maybe somehow play 10 more games or be even a little bit better than Barry Bonds was that year to to get to 14 or 15 more. So. You could do it if you were better than the best player ever at hitting. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Question from Tony. Every once in a while, a GIF will circulate of an EFIS pitch rolling in around 62 miles per hour for a called strike. This got me wondering how slow a pitch could be and still get called a strike. At some point, the deception of a huge change in speed is lost because the hitter who misidentified the pitch initially is able to reevaluate it and swing accordingly. For example, a 30-mile-per-hour pitch is probably slow enough that an MLB-quality player could get multiple reads on it as it comes to home plate. So excluding knuckleballs, what is the slowest called strike of all time? Also, why don't more below-average velocity pitchers add a very slow pitch to make their 91-miles-per-hour fastball look faster? So I will say, I tried to look up the slowest called strike. It's pretty much impossible to do just because of data errors, essentially. So if you search for the slowest called strikes on record in the pitch tracking era, you get all sorts of probably erroneous readings. You get pitches in the 30s and 40s, and some of them, it's possible that there was a real one at some point in there, but most of them are from years where we can't easily look up video. So it's really pretty impossible to say what the slowest called strike on record is. It's probably in the low 50s or something, I'm guessing. There was probably like a really slow curve that was thrown at some point, maybe mid-50s. I don't know. Yeah, That's probably probably, probably yeah. Zag Granke or Vicente Padilla has, right. has thrown one of those, at least one of those. Yeah, there is a—I should try to look this up, but I think there's like a theoretically slowest pitch you could throw, right? Because you have to throw the pitch— at a certain speed just to get it to home plate. And I think that people have maybe done that calculation, but you can't just throw pitch 10 miles per hour or something. It may not, I mean, it might bounce and roll there, but I think to get it into the strike zone, you would actually need to throw it a certain speed. There is a minimum. Maybe we can find it. Well, I found a, uh, I found a Quora, Quora.com. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's basically looks like a dressed up Yahoo Answers, but anyway, yes. there's somebody who left a comment who claims to have a BS in physics from MIT, which is <laughs> almost like having an advanced degree. <laughs> so he says the slowest you could throw the ball from the mound of the plate is about 28.5 miles per hour. So I'm not going to read his explanation. I'm just going to take that as fact. 
Okay. It's either a BS in physics or a BS physics. I don't know which, but <laughs> we'll we'll accept that it's true. So yeah, so why don't more guys throw an ephus and like a, a genuine ephus, not what people today call an ephus, which is just kind of any slow pitch, but the ephus is like the real lob, the real floater. But I guess it's just because it's probably somewhat distracting to the pitcher, just as it is to the hitter. You have to do something completely different, and guys like to get in a rhythm. There's probably also a macho bravado element to it in that you don't want to look like you have to throw a trick pitch to get the guy out. You want to throw your best stuff and challenge him and win like you're a couple of animals locking horns in some battle, but I think that's probably what it is. And also it's just hard to camouflage that that kind of pitch is coming if you haven't practiced it. And even if it is a big change of pace, as the question says, it's probably something that a great hitter could detect if it's very clearly telegraphed. Yeah, I mean, you can't throw an ephus with your regular arm action. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. If you throw an ephus with your arm action, you're just throwing a regular pitch. That's that's like mm-hmm. a we call that a changeup. So what uh, yeah. what you'll see generally when someone says the word ephus now, what they mean is that the pitcher threw a slow curve. A few pitchers will throw mm-hmm. a a slow curve, but otherwise, yeah, I, I guess it's. For one thing, I, I agree with your your macho angle. For quite another, I think it's just hard. You're so accustomed to th- trying to throw the pitches that you throw into the zone, and you're uh, you're trying to know your mechanics. And I think that if you actually slow things down and you go out of your normal mechanics, and you're you're just actually trying to throw a, a lob, I think it, pitchers would actually quite find it quite a bit more difficult to do that accurately. So then yeah. you're just not only throwing a change of pace, but you're probably throwing a ball. Plus, there's the enhanced risk of the batter knowing that you're clearly telegraphing something slow and just looking to swing from the hill. So I think that there there's a variety of issues here. But when you have a pitcher who's used to throwing 93 on the black, then when you ask him to throw 48 on the black, then he's, he's just uh-huh. going to be all the worse for wear. Yeah. All right. You have a stat blast? Several. Okay. Oh. They're quick. <laughs> So we did, uh, I did a few quick ones here. We got a, a reader email a, a short while ago that was talking about how Mike Trout was drawing a lot of walks after falling behind 0-2. Ah, uh, yes. It's an unusual circumstance to draw a walk. So Mike Trout has already drawn 10 walks after falling behind 0-2 in the count. He's batted 69 times after falling behind 0-2. 10 walks is a lot. So we only have pitch information, like pitch count information, going back to 1988. The highest walk total in a season after falling behind 0-2 is 15. It's a tie between Jose Bautista and Tim Salmon. So we have a fish thing going on. But if you were curious Mm -hmm. about walk rate... The highest walk rate after falling behind 0-2 is 17% belonging to 2009 Chipper Jones. So he walked uh, 17% of the time. That's 11 walks in 64 plate appearances. Mike Trout right now is at 14%, which is high. It, uh, it about ties him with a Barry Bonds season. Uh, this is kind of a fun top of the list here. We go Chipper Jones, Barry Bonds, Bill Miller, Lance Berkman, Jack Clark, Barry Bonds, Mike Trout, J.T. Snow, Elijah Dukes. Elijah Dukes, <laughs> do a bunch of walks. Anyway. Okay. Sure. I will also say, pointing out, 
quickly that if you want to really get into the into the play index and play around with after 0-2 count SOPS+, plus, there's really no way to shorten this. <laughs> I will only say this to point out that currently Buki Betts is having the best ever season after falling behind yeah. 0-2. His SOPS+, plus after falling behind 0-2, is 418. He's batting 347. His on-base percentage is 396. He's slugging 776. Buki Betts has been extremely good. Third place currently, Miguel Andujar. Nothing to make of that. I have more. I'm still going. <laughs> that question was from Brian, by the way. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I forgot to say the name. So something I think I mentioned briefly last season is that for a time, the Colorado Rockies actually had a higher winning percentage on the road than they had at home, which was weird. Oh, yeah. It didn't end up that way. It uh, it, it doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't do that. If you look at the, the full history of the Colorado Rockies, 25 seasons through last year, 24 times they finished with a higher winning percentage at home. The one exception was the strike-shortened 1994 season, when they were uh, their winning percentage at home was 28 points worse than it was on the road. Well, this season, the Rockies are 18-22 and 22 at home, and 26-21 and 21 on the road. The winning percentage difference is 103 points, or 10.3%, however you want to call it. They have a 450 winning percentage at home, 553 on the road. Their, uh, their historical winning percentage difference is 0.142. They have won 54% of the time at home. They've won just 40% of the time on the road. So right now, again, we're, we're just past the halfway mark of the season, but the Rockies have been more successful away from home than they've been at home, which is weird for all the same reasons I said last year. This is a team that has the biggest home field advantage in all of baseball. And as the final mm-hmm. thing I will point out related to that, when you hear about home field advantage in baseball, where, where do you put it? What's your, your home team winning percentage usually? Oh, you know, 54%, yeah. something around there. Yeah, it, historically, it's been around 54%. In fact, mm-hmm. last season, it was exactly 54%. All right. This season, home teams, uh, we're through nearly 1,300 games. And the home teams so far, they've won more than half of them, but their winning percentage is just uh, 51.8%. This is very low. This is the lowest uh, home winning percentage since the strike-shortened 1994 season when they won 51.7% of their games. So it's uh, it's been a long time since we've seen home teams quote-unquote struggle like this before. There was a, a stretch back in the aughts, in the, the 20s, even in the 40s when the home teams were winning about 51% of the time every so often. But right now, home teams are having their worst performance they've had in about 25 years. I have absolutely no explanation for this. Might just be the Rockies. Could be any number of things. Could be nothing. Still have to let the second half play out. But for now, home field advantage in baseball for, as far as I can tell, no reason. Yeah. His half disappeared. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there was someone in the Facebook group who was tracking that early in the year and posted about it a few times. And most people said, "Eh, probably a small sample or probably it's an uneven distribution of home games, maybe Bad teams have had more home games disproportionately this early in the season, but it is still happening to an extent, so kind of curious, but since it's not a trend, really, it's not as if home field advantage has been declining gradually over a period of years, I don't know why it would be, and it probably won't be, so, or if it is, it probably doesn't mean that much, but it is kind of quirky and interesting. Yep. All right, let's continue. This is from Cameron. A ton of guys gather base hits from balls that aren't really hit hard. These balls are flares, where exit velocity is something around 70 to 90 miles per hour, and some launch angle right above the infield, but not too high, where it's a pop-up. Do you consider this a skill? Usually we classify high exit velocities as a skill, because not a ton of guys can do it, 
but there are players who consistently hit these flares and accumulate a batting average from that. Can you work on those skills? So you can uh, you can work on your contact. I think this is one of those things where it's it's fast players, right? Like you you look at D Gordon, and he's been I don't know roughly an average hitter over the course of his career, and he doesn't hit the ball hard at all. Mm-hmm. But he clearly has some sort of skill that makes him a better hitter than say Billy Hamilton, who doesn't hit the ball any any harder. I think it, it comes down to a matter of bat control. I don't think you can necessarily learn flares, but you can learn to spray the ball. And I think uh, this is where spray hitters are able to post higher than usual batting averages on balls in play. Mm-hmm. So Alan Nathan has this concept that he calls the donut hole, which is like this area in between bad outcomes that can be a good outcome. So he has explained it. If you have a 22 degree launch angle, for instance, then 70 miles per hour is good because it just clears the infield and it falls in. Whereas, say, 90 miles per hour is just a lazy fly ball and even softer than 70, it's not even going to make it out of the infield. And, of course, if you hit it really hard, if you hit it 110, it's it's a homer. But if you hit it 70, just that right amount, right, the Goldilocks zone there, it will Mm -hmm. fall in. And so I don't know whether that's something you can train to do. Like, I'm sure that some guys just do it naturally more often. But if you were trying to do it, then you would probably be precluding the possibility of hitting that 110 mile per hour ball that you really want to hit. So I don't know, like if you can't hit the ball that hard, if your max is 90 or something, I mean, I don't know if anyone's max is 90, but if you're generally not hitting triple digit exit speeds, maybe you're better off just aiming for that donut hole and just trying to dunk a bunch of balls in in the middle. I don't know whether any players intentionally set out to do that, though. And, of course, if you're, if teams find out that you're a guy who just can't hit the ball hard and you're always hitting a bunch of flares, then they will adjust their defense to account for that. Right. So one th- fun thing you can do on the uh, the Fangraph splits leaderboards is you know that their uh, Baseball Info Solutions classifies every battered ball as soft, medium, or hard. And one thing I was able to do just now is look at the, the leaders in soft balls hitting so just isolating all the balls grouped as soft contact Uh so i'm looking over the last three years or i guess two and a half years with a minimum of 100 batted balls classified as soft contact the league leader in wrc plus for soft contact maybe unsurprisingly is jose altuve but he's at 45 that's not good the top five is jose altuve brandon belt chris bryant d gordon adam eaton followed by rajai davis and oh look at that mike trout uh (laughs) and at the very bottom uh very unsurprisingly last place Kendry's Morales with a WRC plus of negative 86 on soft contact. Mm-hmm. When Kendry's Morales hits the ball soft, he might as well turn around and go back to the dugout. So there's a hint of a skill here, and I think it requires that you make pretty good contact. Or maybe if you're just a power hitter and you're able to make sure that the outfield, if you're, maybe you have to be a power hitter who has high max power ability, but you also make enough contact such that you put weak balls in play. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just easier to say no. <laughs> probably not, no. Yeah, it seems like the sort of thing where if you actually tried to do this, you would probably screw yourself up and never hit balls hard, and ultimately it would be counterproductive, even if you did manage yeah. to hit more of these things. So it's kind of one of those things where when it happens, it's nice and fortuitous, but it's usually sort of an accident. Yeah, I think it's like when, when they say that if a hitter changes a swing to try to hit against the shift, then you've already won. Yeah. It's one of those things. Now, granted, you know, bunt. But right. <laughs> that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. All right. Michael, Patreon supporter. This one's actually kind of stat blasty, but he asked if it could be play indexed. 
It was from a Reddit thread, and it asked, who is the player with the most RBI in a career against one team? Michael says he would love to know the answer, and I now know the answer, so I can tell you and Michael. So here are the leaders against each franchise. I'm not going to go through all 30, but I'll just give you the top five. You will not be surprised by most of them. Number five. Babe Ruth against the Athletics, 323 RBI. Number four, Babe Ruth against the Orioles, 326 RBI. Number three, Babe Ruth against the White Sox, 331. Number two, Babe Ruth against the Tigers, 342. (laughs) Number one, not Babe Ruth, Mel Ott. Mel Ott against the Phillies. 343 RBI, just topping Ruth against the Tigers. So Melot against the Phillies, that is the most RBI that any one player has against any one franchise. If you want to know the fewest, it is the Diamondbacks RBI leader or versus the Diamondbacks. That is Todd Helton, who has 138 RBI against the Diamondbacks. And actually the Mariners one, I'm kind of surprised the Mariners one is next here because that's kind of weird, right? Because the Mariners have been around so much longer than like the Rays, for instance. But the Rays, number 20 on the list, the Rays, because it's David Ortiz has 178 RBI against the Rays. The Mariners, though, are second to last. So Rafael Palmero has the most RBI against the Mariners with 143. And yet the Mariners have been around for 40 plus years and the Rays have been around for 20 years. That's kind of weird, right? That no no player has more RBI against the Mariners than David Ortiz has against the Rays. I mean, I guess it's just kind of a quirk of, I don't know, for one thing, they were in a division with four teams for a while, but if anything, you'd think that would make it more likely for one player to accumulate RBI against them. Or maybe it's just that they haven't had a David Ortiz who's been with one team in their division for a really long time. Is that possible? Like they just, you know, the A's are always trading their good players, for instance. So they're not going to have someone who really racks up a ton against one team. Maybe it's... But they haven't been doing that for 40 years. It's strange. But true, evidently. <laughs> so what's, what's wild is, so I I first started doing any of this. I was participate on the Mariners ESPN message boards back around the turn of the millennium. Uh-huh. And what I remember was back in the day, and this is as far as I know, like before Baseball Reference, before knowing anything about baseball, <laughs> and yeah. people swore by the fact that you know every every team's fans have that like oh nobody kills us quite like this guy and the other team mm-hmm. you know like Giants fans with Paul Goldschmidt or whatever but Mariners fans swore no one hits us quite like Rafael Palmeiro he just kills us for some reason and wouldn't <laughs> you know true. it they're right <laughs> huh. sorry for being so critical message board people <laughs> all right well I'll link to a, a Google Doc I have of all of these leaders if you're curious about the guy who has killed your own team but yeah some some strange quirks on there but Melot top of the list can't swing a dead cat without hitting the Phillies fan who's just furious at Melot for just never giving them a break. <laughs> yeah. All right. Question from Jared. I went to the Los Angeles Angels, parentheses of Anaheim, question mark. Nope. Versus Blue Jays game on June 21st at Angel Stadium. This just happened to be Mike Trout's thousandth game, and he went over two with three walks, one intentional. I, too, would be scared of pitching to him. Anyway, sporadically throughout the game, the Jumbotron would flash the big make noise image, and the crowd would muster up a meager cheer. Angel Stadium was only about two-thirds full on a warm Thursday night. Typically, these pleas to show enthusiasm happen at logical times. Men on base, ninth inning, close game, etc. 
However, the Angel Stadium scoreboard operator decided to plaster make noise across the stadium with two outs in the bottom of the fifth and a 2-1 count to Angelton Simmons. The bases were empty, and the Angels were leading 6-3. to three. This did not seem like appropriate timing. My question is, when is it appropriate for the Jumbotron operator to artificially pump up the crowd during a game? My first thought is that this should be tied to something like leverage index. This at bat had a leverage index of 0.18, according to Fangrass, the lowest <laughs> leverage for an Angels at bat up to that point of the game. Surely the bar must be set higher. Perhaps a leverage index greater than one? Even then, you'd be including a lot of near-average moments. This Simmons at bat followed a home run by Louis Valbuena. Does this context influence the use of the Jumbotron message? Or perhaps win expectancy should be considered? The Angels had a win expectancy of 87.4% following the Valbuena homer. (laughs) So what is the the proper use of make noise? I think it is tied to leverage, but that's also, it's something that they'll put up on the scoreboard when the fans should already know to make noise in the first place. But here's what I like about this. Okay, what if... You go to you go to an Angels game, whatever. It's like a Tuesday night in September. They're out of the race, or even they're in the race. I don't know. I don't care. The entire game scoreboard never changes. It just says "make noise." It's everywhere, <laughs> everywhere around the stadium. Just says "make noise." <laughs> Nothing changes. Maybe there's one of those fake decibel meters or something. Uh-huh. But it just it's constantly exhorting the fans: "Make noise, make noise!" The entire time. And how yeah. long would the fans do it? Because I mean, <laughs> you know, it would never work. But if it worked, look at that. Presto, you got an ambiance. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever believe the fake decibel meter? I definitely yes, believe. Yes, I still, I definitely I still wonder <laughs> I still want to if believe. it's connected to anything. <laughs> I know. It should be. Someone should have a real one. But yeah, I mean, I kind of object to the whole concept of the make some noise message because as you're saying, if it is a moment when noise is warranted, you should know that without having the scoreboard tell you to clap. It's like a laugh track during a bad sitcom or something. I mean, you should know that you have to cheer or clap at the appropriate times. So, yeah, I think that's sort of silly. I mean, you could make the case that this is when the scoreboard needed to flash the make some noise because no one would be making noise at this moment. It would just be dead. Maybe you just flash it at the lowest leverage index point just so it's not depressing. What a great way to distract. Like, if we know how the scoreboards usually use this and it's it's the mm-hmm. it's con- conventional way to do it i love the idea of just putting it on at like literally complete random even like during plays you just put it up there because you know the scoreboard <laughs> itself doesn't make noise you could probably do it yeah so because you know you can't play music during the play but if you just put a message up that just says like make noise here comes like some rookie reliever making his debut or it's just like a a three and one count pitch in the sixth inning and it's like the pirates playing the second game of a doubleheader against the royals and you're just like you know what i just want to see what they do just make noise. Just, if you make it at random, ugh, you know the best thing to do, and this is impossible, but if you could somehow cue the fans without putting it on the scoreboard so the players are just like, what the hell is happening? But that that would require maybe some smartphone activation, which yeah. actually you could do. Yeah. Maybe we should talk to someone in the scoreboard department, find out how they go about deciding when to put make some noise up. Maybe there's some sabermetric scoreboard operator that is actually looking at real-time leverage index and win expectancy, and it has to actually clear that threshold in order to press the button, put the make some noise up there, but probably not. I'm sure they're all going by feel and gut, and probably they have some finely honed sense of when it's time to make some noise. We at least now know of the one scoreboard operator who is not sabermetric. (laughs) Right. All right. 
Kiefer says, one question I've always wondered is, say a cheap team like the Marlins wanted to save money. (laughs) This is starting off very far-fetched here, Kiefer. How detrimental would it be to fire all area scouts and cross-checkers and conduct the draft purely based on online prospect lists and Keith Law's draft boards or even the board at Fangraphs, courtesy of Kylie McDaniel and Eric Longenhagen? Would the savings perhaps allow for more spending in the international market, assuming they don't go to their limit, which would compensate for maybe having slightly less fruitful drafts? I've always thought with how good independent companies like BP and Fangraphs have become at evaluation, teams could just use those lists. This would have the added benefit of guaranteeing positive ink following the draft and A-plus draft ratings by Keith Law in major publications, buying an otherwise maligned ownership group, Good Press. Well, okay. So I guess the one thing you could say is that whoever is doing this in the public, they're not doing this like 10,000 players deep. So like when you get Mm -hmm. to like the seventh round, you got no one who's on any sort of board. You're just picking players at random. Now, the counter to that is in the seventh round, you might as well be picking players at random because (laughs) I've heard from enough people who work from teams who who have been through the draft process a few times and they're just like, yeah, no, just throw in darts. Because honestly, Mm -hmm. some teams have done this such that it's almost all automated. They almost draft like you drafted for the stompers. Like they just have (laughs) sheets up. They have data. You know, like the the first round, the first several picks, you have a lot of information because that's where the real pretty well understood value is. You know, the the top 5, 10, 15 players that are going to be drafted. But after that, it just gets so random so fast that I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that a team should stop having anyone who knows anything about drafting but i mean the downside here is there's not a lot of money to be saved because these people aren't like super highly paid especially the scouts like you yeah you trim them off the payroll and no one's even going to notice that's just mm-hmm. like maybe cutting one major league minimum roster spot but yeah you could draft without knowing much very yeah. honestly you wouldn't be great but you would take a long time for anyone to find out you were worse than average mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, the prospect rankings that you see at Baseball America, for instance, are kind of the industry consensus, I would say. Like, they're formed in many cases, especially at Baseball America. There are many people at BA who collaborate on those rankings, and all of those people are talking to sources with teams and checking these rankings out. So, in a sense, it's kind of like a blend of what those people think and what people with teams think. And it probably wouldn't be all that different from the average draft board of a team, I would think. Maybe in some cases, like if teams are looking at spin rate and a bunch of data that we don't have access to, there are probably some pretty big differences there. But if you looked over a a certain amount of time, I'm sure there would be a number of teams who would have been better off drafting based on the public rankings just because you're always going to get that. It's so random. There's so much chance and fluctuation there that I don't know whether the industry, the public rankings would be like the median team outcome. Like, I don't know whether half of teams would be better and half of teams would be worse. I I would guess that probably more than half of teams would be better than the publicly available, but <laughs> I don't know because it's kind of like a wisdom of crowds approach when you have a bunch of people producing these rankings and also checking them with many people inside front offices, it is kind of like, you know, you're you're probably not going to get the real guys who are undervalued because you're talking to 
every team. And so the consensus is going to be that these guys are not that great. And so you're probably going to miss out on some gems there that like one team is on or two teams are on and Mm -hmm. everyone else isn't. So that's a problem. But on the whole, yeah, I'm sure you could do a lot worse than going with those publicly available ones. Yep. The problem is that there's just no incentive to do this really because, (laughs) yeah, as you're saying, these employees don't make all that much. And also there's just really no hard spending limit on baseball operations departments at this point, just from talking to people as I've been working on the book with Travis. And we've been talking about all the new sources of data and technology and everything. And there was a time when it was hard to get spending approved. If you know you wanted to buy some new system or hire some new R&D people, you had to get that past ownership and it wasn't easy to do. But now that draft spending is capped and international spending is capped, there just aren't that many places you can spend. And so if you want to win and you're willing to spend, then you're going to go get a bunch of scouts. It's what we talked about on the last episode with Sal and the Phillies. They just hired 17 international scouts over the offseason because why not? So I just don't see any real argument for doing this. Look out for the Washington Nationals, who fell behind 9 nothing in the game we were discussing. It is now 9-5, <laughs> to five, halfway over. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. I've been meaning to answer this one for a few weeks. Arjun says, I have a pretty silly hypothetical that came to me while watching the first round of the draft. Suppose we live in some alternate universe where in the AL, each team submits its batting orders, but not the positions of their batters. Before the game starts... The team managers do a snake draft where they assign a fielding position to each player. They can lock in the position of either their own guys or force an opponent to play a certain position. For example, say the Angels are playing the Astros. With the first pick, the Angels force Evan Gaddis to play shortstop. With the second pick, the Astros lock in Brian McCann to catch and then use the third pick to force Angelton Simmons to DH. The Angels get the next two picks continuing in that fashion until all players have been accounted for. I guess for this exercise, we would assume that teams can't employ shifts to move players from their drafted position to a better position. I've also left pitchers off the draft because that would be a bit too unrealistic, (laughs) unlike the rest (laughs) of this. What would be the best strategy for the teams, and how would this affect player values? So you said that you've been meaning to answer this one for a while. So does that mean you want to answer this, or should I just go ahead? doesn't mean I have an answer. You don't have an answer. (laughs) All right. So now I think that the first thing you do is you actually make Mike Trout catch. I think that you just immediately <laughs> make the. I yeah. think that if players, I okay, you take you take Mike Trout, and he could he could fake it at almost any mm-hmm. position. The one thing he couldn't do is catch. There's no there's no <laughs> chance that I think Mike Trout or any non catcher who hasn't caught could look like a competent catcher. It is so hard. The ball is going mm-hmm. so fast. You don't know the signals for one thing. So maybe you're just back there mm-hmm. being like curveball. Just throw a curve (laughs) or just like throw a fastball, but take something off of it, please. Because it's just diving, (laughs) going all over the place. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how to catch it. You're probably just going to Mm -hmm. like strain your oblique catching your first high fastball that's like off to the side. So automatically you make the best player on the other team catch. Uh, So that's what I would do. You would have teams, some teams. Or do you lock in your own catcher? Do you do that first? Oh, yeah. Maybe, hmm. Maybe, I guess it depends on the order Maybe you do that first. Yeah. 
Huh. It depends to some extent on the teams. I, I mean, one effect of this, I guess, would be that there would be an added value to multi-position players. There's already some value to those guys. Obviously, they give you some flexibility. They give you backups. They let you, you know, pursue a player at this position instead of that position because you know you have a fallback option. But in this scenario, then they'd be really good because you just take them off the board. Basically, the, the team could have this guy play left field or third base. You could have Williams Astadio play wherever you want, and he'll be competent because he's done it. So that would probably put a premium on those players. Okay, so maybe maybe if you do it like this, the first pick is always I'm going to preserve my own catcher. So maybe that just ends yeah. up the default. Like you don't even have it as yeah. part of it. So then... You're just placing eight players at eight, or I guess seven players at seven positions, or counting DH, I guess eight at eight. So mm-hmm. then, yeah, you definitely have uh, a lot of emphasis on multi-position players. This would be good for someone like Billy Hamilton. Now, assuming the answer isn't zero percent, by how much league-wide do you think DL stints would go up? Fifteen <laughs> percent? I don't know whether guys would even try that hard, would they? I mean, we don't really have any data on like. What happens when guys play out of position as far as injury rates, I don't think. I think we know that Russell Carlton has shown that when guys switch positions like mid-game, they play a little worse mm-hmm. maybe at the position that they switch to than they typically would. But that's like if you had catchers, obviously, I think they'd be getting hurt all the time. But <laughs> catchers are kind of off the board. Yeah, I don't know, 15% I'll say. You can, you can stand somewhere without getting hurt. You just don't get to any balls. Yeah, that's right. So maybe I don't know. It could be infielders who don't know how to get out of the way, but you know they would they would learn pretty quick, probably. So yeah, mm-hmm. actually, I'm going to go five percent. Mm-hmm. Okay, it reminds me kind of like the the pick ban phase at the start of like a a MOBA multiplayer online battle arena, the type of esport where you have lots and lots of heroes or champions you can choose, and each team has players who specialize in certain champions. And so there's a a pick and ban phase where you can pick the heroes you want to use. You can also ban the opponents from using them. So if you know that one of your opponents specializes in a certain hero, you can say, nope, you can't use that hero in this game. And so they will have to choose their next best option. So it's kind of like that, except that you can actually assign your opponent to the position that they would be bad at. So I don't know if you had like a Byron Buxton or an Andrelton Simmons, then moving them to DH would probably be a pretty high pick. They have zero defensive value in that case and depends on who the backup is, obviously. But uh, if you're facing the Twins and they have Byron Buxton and Williams Astadio or something and you can make them play Astadio in center, they probably have a better option than that. But I think... How many games in a row would Byron Buxton have to be like shoehorn to dh until you have a game where you're like you know he's gotten so few reps in center i actually want him out there (laughs) i don't know it would basically ruin his career (laughs) essentially right i mean (laughs) that's that's the end of my Buxton. (laughs) it's just maybe he's not even worth having on your roster because he's always going to dh and if he can't hit which most of the time he hasn't been able to then it doesn't matter that he's an elite center fielder because in practice, he never will be. So, so how does the bench work in this hypothetical? <laughs> well, that's another thing, right? You'd probably need 
bigger benches and fewer relievers. So if you want smaller bullpens and fewer pitching changes, this is one way to do it. (laughs) The most convoluted and invasive way, but it is a way because you'd have to make sure that you weren't just completely out of it. Like you'd need someone who could play every position in a pinch and you'd need more than one someone because every team has a someone now, but you probably don't have two someones at this point with as big as bullpens are. So you would need to carry more position players and guess there are no position switches and substitutions in this scenario because that would kind of spoil the whole concept, but you'd still need, I don't know, benches that are twice as big as they are now. I think what spoils the whole concept is that it sucks. I uh, <laughs> I like it. It's innovative, uh-huh. but it sucks. Yeah, it's interesting strategically, but the byproduct of this is that you never get to see good players make good <laughs> defensive plays. <laughs> so not sure that that's a net positive yeah, there. No, you should. Uh, this should happen uh, hmm, once a season for every team. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd enjoy seeing it every now and then. All right. And... Okay, I'll just I'll take this one because it is uh, related. So this is from Patreon supporter Matthew. He says, suppose MLB decided to implement a re-entry rule of some kind, such as every player getting to return to the game once, a la softball, or a designated player is allowed to return to the game, a la all-star game, or whatever other rule along these lines. What do you think would be the effect on roster composition? What would be the effect on gameplay? I could logically see both more specialization, more pitch runners and defensive specialists, and less specialization, less need to carry multiple lefties in the bullpen. Under the softball rule, we could possibly end up in a situation where a savvy manager could avoid allowing his starting pitcher ever to bat or his lumbering catcher ever to run the bases. We would no longer see situations where relief pitchers need to play the outfield, unfortunately. What do you guys think? Okay, so you would, uh, I guess maybe the most obvious implementation here is that you would essentially have, like, pinch runners just a, that that would be like byron buxton's job we were just talking about byron buxton well guess what we found him a job in this other weird <laughs> league he can't start anymore but now he's constantly running for a bit like a good hitter who can't who can't move around so he yeah. would be a perfect player on someone like the the peak tigers where miguel cabrera and victor martinez just could hit the crap out of the ball but they couldn't move uh so mm-hmm. that would be the, i think the most obvious first with pitchers you would have you wouldn't <laughs> goodbye to the Waxahachie swap, I guess. That's gone as strategy. Yes. But pitchers would re-enter, but yep. only to a certain extent. You wouldn't have a guy who's coming in to pitch in like the first and the fourth and the ninth or whatever, because I I think managers would be really hesitant to use pitchers after giving them so much downtime. Same reason you see guys who don't return after long rain delays. So I guess you would probably see maybe one or two fewer bullpen spots and and one or two more bench spots because now every team wants someone like a Terrence Gore or a, or a Billy Hamilton. Billy Hamilton's value goes up. So I can't think of another better implementation than that. Although, yeah, I guess you could just pinch it also in the National League every single time your pitcher comes up with uh, mm-hmm. another one of those guys off the bench. Right. Yeah, that's all that really comes to mind. I'm sure there are many other effects that would come from this, but eh, I kind of like the uh, forcing other players to play other positions even more than I like this. <laughs> so At least you could see the second catcher used as a pinch hitter in some situations without managers being like, oh God, what happens if I lose my second <laughs> catcher? Yes. So that would be nice. 
That's true. All right. I'm going to read a quick play index that I did. This is from Mike. What has been the lowest number of wins a team has had and still made it to the postseason? What has been the biggest number of wins that a team has had without making it to the postseason? Did those both occur the same year? No. So I play indexed for winning percentage instead of number of wins. And the team that made the postseason with the lowest winning percentage, 1981 Royals. That was, of course, a split season and a strike season. They made the playoffs with a 50-53 and overall record. That is a 485 winning percentage. And there were some weird seasons that year because if you won the first half, you didn't really have any incentive to win the second half because you were already in the playoffs. So in a real season, a full season, non-strike season, the worst playoff team is the 2005 Padres, who were 82-80. and That's a 506 winning percentage, and that was the weakest division ever, or at least it was until this year's AL Central, which (laughs) last time I checked was even worse. But yeah, after that, it's 1973 Mets, 509 winning percentage, and then, of course, the World Series winning 2006 Cardinals with a 516 winning percentage, and then 2008 Dodgers, 519, also 519, the 97 Astros and the 84 Royals. And then as far as the best teams, of course, there were some really, really excellent teams that didn't make the playoffs back when not many teams made the playoffs. Only two teams made the playoffs for decades. So you had the 1904 Giants, the hard luck losers that year, 106 and 47. That's a 693 winning percentage. Did not make the playoffs. Then you had the 1909 Cubs, 680. 1942 Dodgers, 675. 1954 Yankees, 669. And, of course, Jonah Carey's beloved 1994 Montreal Expos. There were no playoffs, but they were 74 and 40. That's a 649, as were the 1915 Tigers, 649. So, yeah, only two teams made the playoffs. The playoffs were just the World Series. So lots of really excellent teams did not get in. What blows my mind is that last year the Twins made the playoffs. They were the second wildcard in the American League with 85 wins. And this year the second AL wildcard team is on pace to win 102 games and lose 60. That's the Mariners. They will not win 102 games, but that's their current pace. Wildcard, I've never really seen anything quite like this before, but I don't know what I'm rooting for. Whether the Mariners win 100 games and actually push the Astros for absolutely no good reason, or if they just collapse (laughs) down the stretch and let someone like the A's in. But, you know, the A's, the A's are there. They're 48 and 39, which means that, what is that? They're on pace right now to win 89 games, and they are not going to sniff the playoffs. No. That's that's too bad for them. Yeah. All right. I had one more on my sheet here, and I have the answer already. Christopher says, How effective would it be if, to drum up some interest in the general public, Rob Manford brought in a hitherto unknown phenom, a young player who's essentially a five-tool star? Whether this phenom exists right now is worth debating, but bear with me. The only qualification, though, is this player is always wearing a mask. Similar to the masks worn in Lucha Libre wrestling in Mexico, he wears it in the field, at the plate, and in any context where he is participating in baseball or team activities. Also, to keep the air of mystery, this baseball luchador is not available in pre- or post-game interviews. He's just gone. I'm Who gonna, is this mysterious I'm player? Gonna, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you here. You already have the answer to this? I do. (laughs) Yes, and probably. (laughs) Continuing, who is this mysterious player, the public will wonder? Would this be seen as merely a gimmick if it only lasts a season or two at most? Or could this genuinely make people interested just simply for the mystery of who this man in the mask is? And 
The first answer, there's the freeze, right? Remember Mm -hmm. last year when the freeze appeared, he wasn't even a player. He's just the guy who sprints really fast between innings at Braves games. Everyone was fascinated by him, who is this guy. We very quickly found out who he was, so I think people were still interested. But he was a sensation, and he was in a mask. But I think the interesting example here, he has this hypothetical crowd saying, who is this mysterious player? This happened. Have you ever heard the story of Mysterious Walker? Look up on Baseball Reference, Mysterious Walker. (laughs) He was a real player, and no one knew who he was. (laughs) So his name we know now was Frederick Mitchell Walker. He just appeared out of nowhere with the 1910 San Francisco Seals in the Pacific Coast League, and it did cause a sensation because no one knew who he was. Now, he probably didn't wear a mask. If you look, there is actually a 1915 newspaper report that says that he did sometimes wear a mask for the SEALs. I don't think he did. I think that is probably exaggeration. But it is true that no one knew who he was and where he came from. And he was just this very polished pitcher who showed up and started pitching well. And uh, his Wikipedia page actually has a sketch of him from the Spokane Press in 1910 that just has like his sketched mugshot and it says, who is he? (laughs) And it has him just mysteriously looking out at the people and no one knew who he was. And so he was first referred to as Mysterious Mitchell because he said his name was Mitchell, which was his name, but he didn't give his whole name. And so the press was speculating. They were trying to take photos of him. He was avoiding being in photos. He wouldn't say anything about who he was. Eventually, he was photographed, and this photograph was circulated everywhere, and people figured out who he was. And he had been a star pitcher for the University of Chicago some years earlier. Evidently, he wanted to be mysterious because he had signed earlier in the summer with the Giants, the New York Giants, but he, quote, got into trouble with a chambermaid (laughs) at a hotel where he stopped who accused the young pitcher of attempted assault. So evidently he assaulted a chambermaid and didn't want to be known for this. And so he hid his identity and was just Mysterious Mitchell, which is, I guess, less funny once you know that he assaulted someone than it was before. But still, he was mysterious. And uh, ultimately, people figured out who he was, and he did make the majors. He pitched here and there, not with any great distinction. But yes, it was a sensation, and everyone was excited and trying to figure out who he was. And so if it happened today, yeah. I think it would obviously be even harder to pull off today. You really would need to wear a mask and it would just, I mean, there's so much press and high definition cameras and genetic tests. I mean, you could figure out who anyone is. It's pretty hard to be off the grid if you're on a major league baseball team. But if it somehow happened, that would be the biggest story in sports. I guess there's no reason they couldn't do it. Now, you wouldn't, this isn't one of those things you try at the major league level, right? You'd have to do this at some lower level, but then you'd have to do it. You'd have to find some way. Maybe you have to do it internationally or something because you can't telegraph that you're trying this out as like a, as a scam or maybe it's not a scam, but as Mm -hmm. as a technique to generate interest. But you know, if you, if you have a really hot shot prospect and you just, you know, maybe it starts, he's just always wearing one of those seafold helmets, sea flap, sea flap -flap helmets. You know, it's easy. You only kind of see him off to the side of his face and you can't really get a good look at him but you could what it's mark canna 
wears a balaclava, uh-huh. or at least he would often wear a balaclava on the field this season because maybe it was just really cold in the outfield yeah. in Oakland. If you just had a guy wear a balaclava all season, it's already happening. <laughs> you just need a prospect <laughs> to do it and never uh-huh. tell. I don't know if you're. Is it enough to disguise what he looks like, or do you also need to disguise his entire identity? Or yeah, I mean, he can't talk to the press ever, I guess. Or if he does, he can't say anything about who he is. So I mean, we Tango <laughs> Tiger gets by, right? He's like kind of works for baseball, and we don't know who he is. Yeah. They know who he is. They have his real name. They must for like benefits and salary mm-hmm. and and whatnot. But we yep. have absolutely no idea who he is, and he's kind of a a public figure. He's less sensational than a five-tool on-field baseball player. <laughs> but I don't know. There's yeah. some evidence there that this has been could be sustainable. He's been around for 20-odd years writing about baseball analysis, mm-hmm. achieving a certain level of fame, I don't know, 10 years ago. So it's doable. You, yep. you know, maybe it has to be an international player who's ready to jump right into the majors. You just sign him. Maybe you'd give him a little stopover in AAA, whet their appetite, and people can be like, whoa, look at this prospect. No one knows who he is. And then you promote him. I don't know how you. Yeah, right. I don't know what like his his MLB page. I, I'll tell you right now, this would really mess up the Fangraphs <laughs> automated player pages. We would yes. just like how Shohei Otani destroyed <laughs> websites for a little bit because he's both a hitter and a pitcher. This mm-hmm. would be uh, very, very confusing. So I don't know how he would be addressed. Mysterious man, mystery man, probably something more clever than that. But I think it is. It's feasible, but. I don't know how short term it would be because, you know, he could. Oh, by the way, the Nationals are beating the Marlins now 10 to 9. <laughs> I don't believe you. Trey Turner just hit a grand slam. <laughs> I was watching this on game day as this was unfolding. So we were talking about the Nationals behind 7 nothing earlier. It wound up 9 nothing. They're winning 10 to 9. The Nationals are beating wow. the Marlins 10 to 9. You're actually in, telling the truth. I'm telling the you truth. Were kidding. Nope. Uh, <laughs> off Adam Conley, a player we discussed just the other day. But oh, no. <laughs> this definitely is I, I happening. He's a lights out reliever now. Evidently uh, not. Yeah, no, not today. So All right. this well, could this end will up be the fun game for that, people to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> the game that turns around the national season, or they could still lose. Who knows? Uh, that closed door meeting—it didn't take effect right away, but it just—it it was delayed effect. They just had to wait a few innings to really be motivated. And extended then they got release all those runs back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that you could you could uh, have a mysterious player, but how long until he gets doxxed? I don't know how you dox him. But it would happen. It happens to everything on the internet, right? You just get milkshake yes. ducked, and they would milkshake yes. duck the player in the mask. Yes, it would happen. But it'd be fun and sensational before it happened. Yeah. All right. We'll end before the Nationals <laughs> score 10 more <laughs> runs somehow. Well, the Nationals took a 14-9 lead, and the Marlins made it close, scored three runs in the eighth. But the Nationals held on to win that one 14-12. That's a wild one. And if they end up winning the East, you've got your narrative prepackaged right there. That meeting in that game. The Nationals turn the corner. Oh, it writes itself. And the Dodgers won their game on Thursday, too, so they are back in first place at long last. Those teams and their true talent asserting themselves. This podcast does not support itself, but you can help support it by signing up at Patreon. Our page is patreon.com slash effectivelywild. You can pledge some small monthly amount, help keep us going. The following five listeners already have Jason Toms, Adrian Mahareb, Tom Lloyd, Earl Pope, and Conrad Swartz. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group, 
facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and elsewhere. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please replenish our mailbag by sending us emails at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you next week. Pretty girls, pretty boys, have you ever heard your mommy say noise and noise? Pretty girls, pretty boys, have you ever heard your mommy shout noise and noise? Go!